0: Part of the reason that I think Stoicism appeals to people like Cicero and Cato in their time and place and has appealed to lots of people lots of times and places is because at the heart of it is this idea of responding to uncertainty, this idea of when what we're going to get from the world is is so insecure, whether it's our happiness or the health and safety of people we love or our own health and safety or our own material success, you know, things that can be taken away from us in an instant. When that's the case... Stoicism, I think, has looked like a real refuge to people. There's a part of ourselves that is always under our control.
1: Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Tremblay and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. In this conversation, I speak with political scientist Rob Goodman, you may recognize his name from the book, Rome's Last Citizen, which he wrote with the past Stoic Conversations guest, Jimmy Sony. We discuss ancient Rome and Romans, the legends Cicero, Cato the Younger, and what their examples mean for politics and rhetoric today. This conversation helped me think more deeply about rhetoric and its relationship to risk, I think it can do the same for you, too. Here is our conversation. Welcome to STOA Conversations. My name is Caleb Ontiveros, and today I am speaking with Rob Goodman. Rob is the Assistant Professor of Politics and Public Administration at Toronto Metropolitan University, and he is the author of Rome's Last Citizen with Jimmy Sony. Words on Fire, and also the book, Not Here. Thanks for coming. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, let's start with this question. What's your story?
0: So as you mentioned, I'm a professor here in Toronto. I might teach classes on things like ancient political thought and and history of political thought and temporary political theory. But before I got into academia, I was a speechwriter. So I worked on Capitol Hill in DC in both the House and the Senate, writing speeches for democratic leaders for about five years altogether. So after that, I went backpacking in New Zealand for a while with my wife. And, and after that, I went to grad school. When I started thinking about what I'd like to study on uh, the way to being a political scientist, I, I thought about something that could combine my interest both in ancient politics, especially the Roman Republic, and in the study of speech writing and eloquence. So I decided to make that my focus and work on rhetoric and, and history of political thought, the idea of eloquence and political theory. So when I sat down to uh, write my most recent book, minus one, I've got one coming out of uh, Canada in, in just a little bit, the next, uh, this summer, actually. But so my most recent one grew on my dissertation work when I started thinking about uh, the idea of eloquence and why it's so important to thinkers like Cicero and why, why uh, it's such an important concept, not just in the ancient world, but for much of our political history that we inherit and uh, why it seems less important today and, and what's happened to change our understanding of what eloquence does and what it means and, and why it matters or doesn't matter. And- that's really been a, a pleasure to me to combine my professional interest in speech writing and rhetoric with my interest in the history of political thought and how ideas, especially political ideas, combine and, and change and, and go through metamorphoses over time. So it led to my book, Words on Fire. It's called Words on Fire, Eloquence in Its Conditions. And it's about that idea of eloquence, what it meant in the ancient world and what it might be in a world that still looks to people like Cicero for, for political inspiration and models of time but of course has some really different political institutions. Uh, Does his idea of eloquence still matter to us? And if not, maybe what do we lose as a result of that? Yeah. Who was Cicero? Well, Cicero is probably most people's go-to figure if if they were to think about the most influential and most important orator, not just in the Roman world, but of all time. He's sort of Mm -hmm. everyone's model for eloquence. So- that That's how he appears sort of as a, as a marble statue. But I think the really interesting thing is that Cicero was also someone who was an active politician and a lawyer. He was someone who was deeply involved in, in Roman politics at a time of, of course, crisis and transition, political breakdown, constitutional crisis, and an upcoming civil war. And Cicero in the last generation of, in the Roman Republic had a hand in all of that. So not only was he an active politician who was actively engaged, in giving speeches in the Senate and to meetings of the Roman people and, and to representing clients in political trials in the Roman law courts. He was also someone who gave a lot of thought to what eloquence means, why it matters, how it changed over time, and what it means at a time of political crisis. That's one reason he appeals to me. He, you know, Obviously, you know, he, he's in another league compared to anyone I know, but there, there's something there that appeals to me about the idea of combining theory and practice. So a person who was both practicing oratory as significantly as it's ever been practiced but also in the time when he wasn't pursuing active politics, sitting down to think about its theory and how it fits into an account of of what a republic means and what republican politics mean in general. So not a lot of people in history give us that, the ability both to practice public speech at that high level, but also to spend a lot of time writing theoretical reflections on it. It took a of time.
1: Right. Yeah. He does. He is possibly one of the most impressive combinations of theory and practice, I suppose, on the theory side, he has of course, that there's a theory of oratory, but also quite a lot of philosophy on different philosophies of life to accounts of you know what is a just war and how to grieve, and then we also have, in terms of his life, he went through the fall of the Roman Republic, basically, arguably he saved it first, saw it perish and then started to see the new Roman Empire start to rise. So that is quite a life.
0: It, it is. And I, I think living a, a political life at a time of crisis like that is probably not very pleasant to someone who has to go through it. And a lot of Cicero's letters and his communications with people that he lived with sort of testify to that. And that, That's one of the really neat things about Cicero's. we don't just have his academic works and, and copies of the speeches. He did a really deliberate job. And he had also the people he enslaved who were his secretaries did a really deliberate job of preserving his letters to other Roman elite figures that were then chronicling what it was like to live through this period of a tremendous upheaval uncertainty. And I think the more that the time we live in looked like that sort of time, the more we I think can identify with what it might've been like for Cicero who was in the middle of it, you know, virtually from his twenties to the untimely end of his life when he died in political violence or was assassinated. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the other figure you've thought a lot about is Cato, the younger. So how how would you contrast their two lives, if you will? You have Cicero in politics and Cato. What do you think are the most important details to, to know about these these two Roman figures?
0: Yeah. So as you mentioned, with my co-author, Jimmy Sony, I wrote a book called Rome's Last Citizen about Cato. And that title was a little bit provocative because of course, he wasn't in any kind of like legal sense, the last citizen. But in a lot of ways, he represented to people, including Cicero, the, this dying idea of a Roman Republic that looked like it was on the way out over the course of his life. So I think the contrast that I'd point to is that although they both placed a really high value on, on what it meant to be a free and self-governing Republic, what it meant to have Republican institutions, what it meant to have a, a Senate, what it meant to have elected magistracies and so on, all these things that are associated with the traditions of Roman freedom. Cicero, in many ways, was an outsider. He sought power. He played the game. He made alliances. They, they weren't always smart. And of course, it didn't always work out for him in the end. But he was someone who very much rose from the position of an outsider, from the position of someone who you know, was a so-called novus homo, a, a new man, someone without illustrious ancestors in politics, and, and rose to the absolute top of the consulship and was exceptionally good for most of his life playing the political game on the strength of his oratory and the strength of his just native politics skills, Cato, you know, like Cicero, is another member of the elite. But there are some important differences. One, he's descended from a very illustrious family. Part of the reason we call him Cato the the younger is because Cato the elder, his his famous ancestor, was well known as being the most famous Roman censor. He was sort of this enforcer of ancient Roman morals and ancient Republican ideals. And is famous for popularizing the, the saying "Cartago Delinda est," Carthage must be destroyed, which sort of speaks to his vengefulness in, in foreign policy. So his his descendant Cato the Younger inherits a lot of those qualities, those qualities of sort of inflexibility and unbendingness, and, and traditional morality. So whereas Cicero really prioritized, I think, climbing through the political system, Cato, although he pursued a life in politics, also was not really unwilling to tell people to go screw themselves. If seeking political office or seeking popularity, compromise what, what he saw as his ideals and the republic's ideals. So he goes out in history as a much more uncompromising figure. And the thing that he's probably most famous for is resisting Julius Caesar, the, the dictator who is, is a prime mover of the fall of the republic, resisting in the, in the civil war. And then once it's clear the war is over and that Caesar is won, uh, Cato famously kills himself rather than live under Caesar. Caesar's dictatorial rule, even though Caesar uh, made a big point of saying that he would have pardoned it to demonstrate his mercy. So Cicero, I think, is really famous for laying down political theories of of republicanism and eloquence and and oratory that explain what the republic was, even as it was going passing out of history, that, that people turned to in later years for inspiration. I think Cato is more famous as someone who never quite wields the, the degree of political power that Cicero does, but wields a significantly higher degree of moral power because of the force, of example, because he was not willing to compromise. You're right up to the end when he chooses to end his life rather than submit. But even before that, he was someone who probably could have had a more successful political career if he had greased the right poems and, and said the right things in public. But part of his self-image and part of what he really valued about what he wanted to project for himself to the public was the idea that Cato was someone who only listens to himself, who only listens to his own sense of, of principle and, and never makes political compromise. So he, in a lot of ways, they both end up watching their political projects go by the wayside and fail. They're, they're both in a sense of political failures because their project of preserving a certain form of government, of course, doesn't work out for either of them, but maybe for different reasons. I think one of the judgments that Jimmy and I make in the book is that Cato might've been more politically successful if he'd been a little shrewder and, and more willing to make appropriate political alliances. Whereas a lot of times the knock on Cicero historically has been that he was too willing to do so, that you know, despite the fact that he has a set of uh, you know, political theoretical beliefs, he was also willing to do what it took to, to form alliances and, and to keep and maintain power. And you know what we propose in the book is that the, these are people with with very compatible goals who had a similar vision of what they wanted the Roman Republic to look like. But you know, sort of their fatal weakness on both counts was that they, they couldn't find it a way towards Really forming a stable kind of alliance towards cooperating with one another, to, towards bending, towards blending, Cicero's oratorical skill and sense of the inside game of politics, and and Cato's really inspiring defense of Republican principles. I, I think that as a more, you know, of course they they, they were friendly, but we describe them more as frenemies because they couldn't always agree on a strategy, and we think that with a more flexible approach and, and with a greater willingness to you know, make common cause uh your history might have been at least a little bit different at least in in the the short term but of course that that's what of history is great what ifs as far as we're concerned
1: right right yeah i suppose if you wanted to describe cato the younger well or admirably you know he would say he's exceptionally principled but of course you could also describe him as perhaps ignorant or even delusional about the nature of politics and then you have cicero much more crafty willing to compromise but perhaps too Willing to compromise, not so keen to die for what he saw the republic. Uh, yeah, but although,
0: both- well, although I will say, you know, Cicero does end up dying for it, just like Cato does. You know, the difference being that I think Cicero was trying to escape when, it, when he was caught up to by the the troops of Marcus Antonius, who was Cicero's big enemy at the time. You know, Cato, I think, was the kind of guy who was very happy and proud to die for his political beliefs. I think Cicero. Although, you know, by all accounts, he faces it very bravely in a way that Stoics would probably admire. I, I think much would have preferred to live to fight another day. So I think that's <laughs> that's another difference there.
1: Right. Absolutely. What do you personally find most admirable about Cato the Younger?
0: Hmm, what do I personally find most admirable? I think one of the things that's interesting is that, you know I think this goes to, to his Stoicism, which, which I know is, is a theme of your podcast, which is you know, part of Cato's imperviousness to other people's opinions is connected to his stoicism. I think it's both that, that stoicism, as he learned it from his, his Greek teachers and, and tutors, taught him that idea of sort of self-sufficiency, of the idea that uh, one's own virtue is something that can't be compromised by other people or by how things out there in the world go, that that you can always, you're always in, in control of, of your, your reactions and maintaining your virtue in that sense. So I, I think that that's something he learned from stoicism. But the other interesting thing is that in a lot of ways, Cato was willing to publicly identify himself as a Stoic and publicly embraced Stoic beliefs at a time uh, when that would have been a really odd position. That would have been a really, uh, made him an outlier among Romans. And a lot of Romans in the senatorial class, you know, people like Cicero, you know, gave him no little amount of of political flack for for, for these really strange beliefs that he was reputed to have. So, you know, whereas I think a lot of us think about people like later Stoics, like Seneca and Marcus Aurelius, and think about Stoics at the center of power as being just sort of synonymous with with what it means to be Roman. Um, that was by no means the, the case in Cato's time. To be stoic in a lot of ways was to be un-Roman. It was, it was sort of be, to be Greek. It was this imported philosophy that was gaining a toehold as a result of people like Cato. So to be able to scorn public opinion in the way that he did and also to be able to you know adopt and import a philosophy that struck a lot of people as odd, but struck Cato as very much worth living and dying for, that That's the admirable and principled side of his character. I think that's the, the flip side of his, you know, sort of inability to compromise is he was also in, unable to compromise when it was a matter of his, his personal beliefs and his personal integrity. You know, that That's why we enjoyed writing about him because he's such a, he's such a puzzle, I think, because the biographers, I think, love people like him in the sense that his admirable character, his admirable quality was also the, the complete flip side of his less than admirable quality. They're the very thing that, that made Cato such an inspiring and transformative figure in the history of Stoicism and in the history of Rome was also the thing that sort of doomed him. Um, yeah, that's right. You, As you go through his his
1: life, you see, oh, this is uh, the fruits of his principledness. Uh, you see him as a virtuous character. Then as go, things go on and on, he's, he's faced with these different political choices, say an alliance with Pompey the Great, one of the his enemies, someone who he fears is going to threaten the Republic. He just you know th- throws out any olive branches Pompey might offer him, and you, you wish, oh, well, at this point, maybe you could have been, if not a little bit less principled, at least more savvy with, with what you were doing with your sorts of political decisions, perhaps. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a sense you get where initially you're very excited about his character, and then you see this is the sorts of thing that can get one in all sorts of problems in the political yes. realm.
0: It's a good, yeah, that, that's an accurate description, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. What about what about that same question for Cicero? I'm curious, you know, when you think about the admiral traits about, you know, what do you, you personally find most admirable on Cicero's side?
0: Well, I think for Cicero, what's really admirable for me is the way that he is able to both be an active participant in this political race, as we've been talking about, but also someone who's able, to, you know, in his sort of moments of enforced exile or his moments of, of not being active in politics, to step back and think about what it all means. And that, that's why he's important, not just in the political history of the republic, but in, in the the political theory that comes out of it and the eloquence that comes out of it. And I just think about what it was like to live through you know, our, our recent upheavals, just, just living through COVID, for instance. It's one thing to just put your head down and get through the day-to-day, but I think the people I've really admired in that and people who've been able to give us a sense of where it's all going and how this might be changing our world as it's happening. And in a very different way, that that's what Cicero did. I, I think the really interesting thing in, in my recent book about eloquence that I write about is how Cicero starts from the, this fact of a political crisis and turmoil. The idea that, that an orator, a public figure like him, can no longer expect to, to dominate the political scene just on the force of his words because it's a time when words are giving way to violence. So if that's the case and, and Cicero sees it happening all around him, he has to start thinking about why does eloquence matter or does eloquence matter in a world where people are settling things with their fists or with swords? And he comes up with a really interesting and innovative answer that I think has been really influential, which is that eloquence is is no longer for Cicero about necessarily winning or dominating audiences, dominating the other speaker. You know, those things are nice, but that's not the gist. You know, the gist, the real kernel of it for Cicero is this ability to endure risk, this ability to say, in a moment of political crisis, when a public speaker goes out to confront an audience, when an orator goes out to confront the Roman public or the Senate or a jury at trial, the orator shows... Courage and bravery and virtus, this quality that Rome is associated with—courage with and manliness—not necessarily by by winning and dominating opponents, but by enduring, by dealing with this enormously high-risk situation, by dealing with the fact that everything could go wrong and he could lose face, which for someone like Cicero was, was worth everything, including his life itself. If if the performance goes wrong, if he screws up, and that this is the real source of eloquence, you know, not necessarily the the, the particular order of words you put them in. But, but what happens in the process of a, a speaker confronting public risk, a speaker confronting an audience with the power to make things go very badly for him if he screws up, and in the moments where he doesn't screw up, in the moments where he's able to endure that possibility and still string together some remarkable words, that's really the moment where eloquence is born. You know, so for Cicero, I, what I get from this is the idea that faced with this political crisis and faced with th- this change in, in this practice of, of, of oratory he, he dedicated much of his life to, You know, he wasn't a traditionalist. He wasn't someone who just sort of blindly clung to the old way of doing things because that's always how they've been done. He was someone who really, I think, sat down for a rethink and, and said, how can we reimagine what oratory means, what public speech means, what my, my, my calling and my profession means? at a time when everything is up in the air, at a time of just, mm-hmm. uh, just political upheaval. And that I think is what's been really enduring about his work, and of course, it's enduring enough that you know, some 2000 years later, you know, some guy in Canada is still thinking about Cicero and thinking with him and, and writing books about him. And, and not all of us get to say that, of course.
1: That's really quite incredible is that, that so many of his works were done as a result of exile or some amount of force, downtime, yeah. and um, yeah. It's the sort of thing we end up finding exceptionally philosophically, politically useful. So initially, we have this model of rhetoric that comes down to us, and if we wanted to caricature it, we could say, like, well, rhetoric, that's the sort of thing one does to persuade or perhaps even manipulate a group of people. Whereas I think that's not, as you just suggested now, that's not Cicero's picture of rhetoric, let alone eloquence.
0: No, I, I think that that's fair, and I think you know definitely this is something that that, that the people who study rhetoric you know, struggle with. And I talk to my students about this too when we study public speaking and, and political rhetoric. Rhetoric definitely can be manipulative; it, it's, it's manipulative a lot of the time. But I guess where I get off that train is the idea that, that it's not inherently manipulative. I, I think people use rhetoric as a really dirty word to to stand in for and to mean manipulative speech when there's a lot more it can be. You know, some of the things it can be for for Cicero. For instance, you know, there's this idea of, of enduring risk, confronting a public, bearing some kind of vulnerability, on the part of, of an elite member of the, the political class, who normally wouldn't have that vulnerability. You know, that's one thing. I think there's also a, a, a lot in, in Aristotle's view of rhetoric. You know, that Cicero studied and was aware of. When Aristotle talks about rhetoric, isn't the art of persuading people? It's the art of, of seeing the available means of persuasion, and that's really interesting because just like Cicero, Aristotle isn't really situating what rhetoric means in the ability to win people over. He's situated in this sort of art of perception, of, of seeing a situation, uh, of exercising collective judgment together, of understanding things. So I, I think of rhetoric as a way of, as, as a kind of perception. It's an understanding of the situation you're in. It's an understanding of where the issue at hand. It's an understanding of the audience you confront and, and what they need and what matters to them and how they think and how they feel. And, and out of all these things, rhetoric is a way of, of coming to collective judgments, of, right. of thinking through difficult questions that are that concern the public under conditions of uncertainty. And this is important for Aristotle, it's important for Cicero. It's, it's important in the history of thinking about rhetoric. And part of the reason I think why I, I, I resent the idea of, of rhetoric as inherently manipulative is that I think it neglects how much history goes into thinking about what else rhetoric can be and the other kinds of values. You now, that doesn't mean it's always good, of course, it's mm-hmm. not. Of course, there's manipulative rhetoric, there's pandering rhetoric, there's demagogic rhetoric, there's all sorts of ugly facets of it. But I think that would be, you would be looking at the, the absolute worst aspect of anything and associating that with the whole. Whereas I, don't, I, I think that a more intensive study of what it means um, and a more intensive study of what it means to people who practice it at a high level and how it has mattered to them and how it's mattered to their societies, it shows you how, how rhetoric and political freedom go together too. So it's not either good or bad. It's just really interesting. And of course, that makes it a great thing to study.
1: Yeah, I suppose on the manipulation model, if you will, you have this idea that, oh, you have this some set of policies or some ideas that you want to transmit to whatever the audience is. But on the model you're sketching out, the model Cicero's sketches out, you're, you're not just trying to transfer ideas to some other people. You're also learning from them, engaging from them in a much more democratic way and a way that involves uncertainty and involves some amount of risks of the sorts of things you transmit are the sorts of things they, they d- that don't land so well.
0: Yeah, yeah. And what I would say is that it's very much a two-way street. If you're practicing rhetoric as sort of a monologue or as a one-way street, just just telling people what you need to tell them, you're not going to be that successful. You know, Of course, part of the essence of it is this idea of, of learning and speaking at the same time. I mean, it's not like formally a dialogue. But in a lot of ways it has this sort of dialogue properties that that what makes it go over well is a product of, of how well one knows the audience and how well one anticipates their reactions to, to anything you know, from from a figure of speech or or the rhythm of your speaking you know, to the to the broader argument, the broader case that you're making. And I think one of the the resources we get from people like Cicero is how to think of ways to make rhetoric more like a dialogue and less like a monologue. You know, the point of view that I take, and I talk about this in the book and my general point of view, is that the political societies that have to make collective judgments or democratic judgments or, or judgments among the public are always going to have rhetoric. They're always going to have some kind of form of this. The question is, does it look more like members of the elite talking down to people who you know, they don't really engage with Or does it look like a more riskier, dangerous activity where they put something at stake and where there's a possibility of it going badly and a possibility of losing out? You know, these are all aspects of of rhetoric that I think Cicero really brings to the fore. And I think by drawing on those, we can make rhetoric a little more democratic in our time.
1: What's sort of a model of rhetoric used well for Cicero?
0: Well, I have a really interesting example that I, that I talk about. There's a moment when one of his uh, his interlocutors, the people who we're speaking, who are speaking for him in his dialogue on oratory, talks about a successful trial that he had. The, the, the orator is named Antonius, and he's defending this guy who's a Roman general who is brought up on corruption charges. And you know, it's, it's it's not clear whether or not he did it. Let's just assume these people are attorneys defending their clients. So he wants to give them the best possible defense he can get. And, and Antonius describes the what he does at the end of the speech which is sort of dramatically ripping off his, his client's toga and revealing his battle scars underneath, which was perceived as very inspirational and perceived as demonstrating what he had sacrificed in his, in his fight for the public, that he wasn't just someone who sort of sat behind the front lines, but actually was stabbed and scarred and suffered for his people's political independence. So this is really, for Cicero, really a model for a lot of reasons. So one, you know, it's this—it's—it's it's a dramatic gesture. You know, Cicero's oratory is full of, of dramatic gestures. It's full of what later people would call the the sublime, or the, this invocation of a really big, swirling, dangerous emotions—not just in speech but also in gesture. I think there's there's a drama in kind of Roman rhetoric that Cicero mm-hmm. talks about that I think is missing from a lot of our speech. But there's also the sense that the, the, it's it's a sense of risk. It's a very—it's it, an odd and dangerous gesture you know, to strip someone partially naked in public. That's a thing that sort of inherently goes against a lot of our norms around things like clothing and things like propriety and what it means to be a a general or what it means to be a Roman or what it means to be an older man. But knowing when the moment is right to do that and knowing or at least anticipating how this is going to go over is what makes this gesture that Cicero talks about such an impressive gesture, a gesture performed with really high stakes with a high risk of it going wrongly, but nevertheless finding out in the moment that it's the correct gesture for the time. That, that's the sort of thing that he he celebrates and I make a, a good bit of See. in the book. So
1: as you're speaking or thinking about evaluating others who are speaking, what sorts of responsibilities does one have to practice rhetoric well?
0: Well, I think the main responsibility I talk about is this responsibility to, to embrace risk. This idea that... What makes rhetoric interesting and then worthwhile and a test of, of what Cicero would have called virtus is is the ability to do things that endanger one's standing, that are are important, but also risky and threatening to one. I, I think the other side of this is that I think when speakers take these sorts of risks and say things that are dangerous and say things that are out of the box and say things that aren't unprotested and predicted, there's also a, a burden on the audience to sort of rise to the challenge, to rise to the challenge of demonstrating a similar willingness to risk themselves and risk their beliefs, their convictions, their their understandings of themselves, to risk a rethink of what's important to them. But I think the responsibility is on both sides. And one of the things I I complain about the book is the way in which I think a lot of modern politics is a departure from those responsibilities. There are a lot of tools that, that, that politicians of all political persuasions can use to make their attempts to persuade the public a lot more predictable, a lot more tested, a lot more reliable, a lot more, you know, a lot safer. And these techniques are really sophisticated. They're, they're everything from from data mining people's social media profiles to using cognitive psychology um, or polling or focus grouping to test messages. So these techniques have gotten better, but at the same time, it's not like they were alien to the ancient world. You know, Cicero lived at a time when it was really easy to, to buy rhetorical handbooks that they're, they're purported to give you the, the, the sort of solutions as to what kind of appeal to make and what kind of situation, what kind of argument works when. Uh, People have always been trying to make rhetoric more predictable, more reliable, safer for the people who practice it. So the thing that I get from his example is not that that we're living through a big technological change that's ruined everything, but that you really need a culture of valuing oratory and valuing risk to give political actors the the wherewithal and the interest in, in saying no to some of these things, in saying that when one sets out to try to persuade a public there are things that matter as much as success, if not more than success, that there's a kind of virtue in doing it well, regardless of the outcome. And I think that there aren't a lot of politicians in in 2023 who would identify with this. This is one of the things I think we can get for the Roman example, but that other things matter in addition to success. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. There's this idea of craft that's, I think, poured into the many practices, but rhetoric being one of them, and to be yeah. good at a given craft, you don't always need to get the desired desired outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am curious if there are other responsibilities on the audience audiences side that we have when we listen to people giving particular messages. So, you know, one is responding, I suppose, appropriately. But just to be a little bit more precise, I suppose it's responding with a our own convictions or managing when. The speaker maybe challenges the audience or says something slightly out of the box appropriately. But what else would you add to that, or maybe could you detail that in a little bit, a little bit more than I just?
0: Well, I think the audience's responsibility, as I see it, is all about I think this willingness to be changed by what we hear. I, I think what we believe and how we orient ourselves in politics, and how we think about what matters, is a really deep part of who we are. It's really central to our identities. If you ask people who they are, what are the first people, you know, what are the first things they'll tell you? I and mean, maybe not in every conversation. But but as you get to know someone, you'll learn about their political convictions. You'll learn maybe about what party they support. You'll learn about how they came to believe what they believe. You'll learn about their philosophy. These things are, are constituent parts of who we are. They really matter to us. But but really powerful, challenging rhetoric can change our convictions and change our beliefs. And that means it can change who we are. And that's a really scary and dangerous thing. And and not everyone is willing at all times to be open to that, you know, nor should they. I think there's a reason that we try to protect ourselves from you know these sorts of deep down challenges to what we believe and who we are that's why people seek out information they already agree with and that's why that the the parts of their brain that are, are associated with making arguments light up when you present people with a political document that goes against whatever they happen to believe so there's a reason people protect themselves from these things but i think what it really takes to be a good democratic citizen is that real deep down willingness to to, to listen and to be changed by what you hear but what i what i suggest in in my writing is that I don't want to blame people, ordinary people, people who listen, you know, pe- people like me, not, not people who are, who are speaking to audiences of millions, but but people like me and you, um, or you you have a podcast, so there are a lot of ways you're both camps, but you know, people like me who, who listen and are democratic citizens, I don't want to blame ordinary people because I think the situation we find ourselves in, in which a lot of people avoid having their minds changed, which a lot of our political associations are just sort of tribal and just sort of knee-jerk reflexes. A lot of that comes from, I, I think, the sort of degraded environment we live in, in, which which we don't see our, our political leaders, our political elites taking those kinds of risks. So I talk about rhetoric as 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 risk sharing or or mutual risk taking or mutual vulnerability. But I, I also think that, you know, as, as Spider-Man says, with with great power comes great responsibility, I, I think a lot of the responsibility for changing the place we find ourselves in comes from the top, comes from the elite. I, I think it's reasonable to to sort of shut our ears and not be persuaded if if we don't hear from, from the elite a willingness to, to risk themselves, a willingness to speak more spontaneously, a willingness to have things go very badly because they're embracing that degree of spontaneity. And I think unless and until that happens, I think it's also reasonable on the side of the public maybe not to listen as well as we ought to.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, I suppose so much political activity seems either like performance, you know, there's a model of legislative bodies as bodies that are supposed to be deliberating towards different ends. But... By and large, it seems like what most legislative bodies do in the states any rate involves more a matter of performance rather than deliberation. Or you have, on the listener's side, a matter of consuming those performances. It's more of a consumptive thing rather than something that could threaten a change of opinion, which, right. is, which is less than ideal in many ways. But yeah, it's, I think it's even many things that I would find myself listening to that might be challenging or that I might think, Oh, this is causing me to think about a particular thing, whether it's a given podcast or lecture, what have you. If I sit back and think about what I'm really doing when I do those activities, it's much more of a consumptive one rather than one where I'm willing to change or update a, a given belief. I think that's true across the board.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I think that that there's a lot of interesting stuff written about this. Jeffrey Green wrote a book that I teach my students a lot called The Eyes of the People. and It's about kind of coming to terms with the fact that most of us perceive politics. We we relate to politics as spectators. We are consuming, we're we're watching, maybe we're we're doing kind of small things like occasionally you vote or occasionally you click like on social media. But for the most part, we we don't relate to politics as the sort of active decision makers. We relate to politics as as spectators. And I think that's not not necessarily the end of the world, but it does sort of change the the equation for what can be expected of regular people in politics. So I think Mm -hmm. one way of reacting to this is we, we should... Strive to make politics more democratic. We need more power and more rules for ordinary people. And I agree. And I think that's great. But as long as we relate to politics as spectators, I think that also means we need to think about the quality of our spectating um, and how that's shaped by the quality of what we hear from political elites.
1: Right, right. So would that make you more sympathetic to moving political decisions to the local domain or trying to make things more democratic that way, given that it seems like it's such a large scale? Of you know, democratic decision making at the national level, even the state level, it's very easy for an experience to turn into a consumptive one, given that a given decision maker isn't going to have that much actual power if they're simply voting along with, you know, a few hundred thousand other people.
0: Yeah, I think about this a lot. I, I think there's a lot to be said for that, you know, for the idea that. When I, when I think about what's important in the tradition of thinking about eloquence, there's this immediacy. There's a sense of being in the room where a decision is being made and, and reacting to the words that, that you are, that are being said while you're there and being able to listen and participate and, and react in the moment. And, and I know that that these sort of you know town meetings or, or, or city council sessions or school board sessions can get really heated and ugly. And oftentimes there's a lot of wasted time. There's a lot of vitriol and hurt feelings. But they can also be really powerful. I mean, I've been in both. I've been in these sort of moments on, on small scale, whether they're sort of union organizing or, or, or arguments among you know people in my profession at professional conferences or local level meetings where the relevant decision makers are in the room trying to figure out something together. And it can be it can bore you to tears, but at moments, it can also be really powerful and transcendent. This idea that, that no one's responsible for this but us. You know, of course, the difficulty, I think, is taking that and figuring out how to solve large-scale problems of the kind that we have to deal with on a human-sized, meaningful scale. And that's really, really hard. And I don't have to answer that. I, I think a lot of smarter people struggle with that. But you know, one thing that I think appeals to me is the idea that when we make, when we figure out political decisions, part of what's relevant is not just what we should decide, but at what level should something be decided? Can we decide things at the most local possible level for any given issue? And I think that's an important principle to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. Right,
1: yeah, that's useful. So I suppose one yeah. alternative model to... Rhetoric is more conflict-oriented, where instead of thinking about trying to determine the truth of a given matter or being open to being persuaded about another matter, it's much more coalitional. You have your point of view, and the other side has their point of view. There's no willingness on the other side to be vulnerable or submit themselves to any kind of change. And this, so we get a picture of political engagement that's simply like conflict-oriented and trying to win. What do you say to people who, on you know whatever position, have that sort of view where they think, look, the discussions, discussions over. It's been over four decades. Let's let's try to win now.
0: Yeah, well, I think that's always part of it. You know, rhetoric wouldn't have any sort of thing motivating people to do it if the stakes weren't high. And one thing that I get from Cicero is this idea that settling things with words is so valuable because the only other alternative is settling things with with fists or weapons. I think about all these these great moments that he narrates in his dialogue, in, in which people like him and his mentors are are trying to keep the peace and and failing, and things are breaking down into civil war. So this idea that being able to settle these major questions. You know, simply through talking in mean, a lot of ways is just magical. But of course, we have to accept that we can do that. We have to accept that the stakes matter. We have to accept that there's something at stake, and and people have to be motivated by winning and losing. And that that's completely, I think that's completely part of the process. And valid, I guess. All I'm trying to say is that that's not all there is to the process. That that what also matters, not not just sort of the the personal character and the personal virtue or ethics of of the the person speaking, but also how the ways we. Negotiate these things the way we do problem solving in public, the way we do collective judging in public. How these ways shape the kind of society we're in, you know. So just as I think we want to be a society that that settles things with words rather than fighting, I think we'd also want to be a society that settles things with particular kinds of words, with with, with you know not not special words per se, but with. With With models of what public speech should look like, you know models that involve sort of give and take, models that involve dialogue rather than monologue, and models that sort of kind of leads down to size a little bit in a democratic fashion, these things are all, I think, all part of the equation as well, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. right One
1: question I wanted to ask is about Rome generally, so of course, there's always a question: yeah. Are we Rome that many Western countries tend to ask themselves? And they're often looking at, though not always, they're often looking at the late republic. How useful of a political analogy do you think the late republic of Rome is for states like Canada or the U.S. today?
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that that's a hard question. That's a question that comes up a lot. Yeah, you know, in, in some ways it is, in some ways it isn't. So I think one way that it is, is that what the Roman Republic looked like was a, a, a system that had a lot of... You know, you know, Republican commitments, commitments to competitive politics. You know, even though it was among an elite, you know, public contestation, public voting, elections. You know, things that are not quite democratic in our sense, but have a large role for the people to play and have a large role to bring the people into contestation with the elite. You know, things that we would recognize as values that are that are not that different than our own. And then also dealing with the fact that the society that has those institutions. Is also a society that 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 is a world hegemon, is a world power. It is a cumulative empire, and in a lot of ways, people have looked at the analogies between the you know the American empire, between American world hegemony and power, and, and Roman world hegemony and power, it's, its own kind of you know smaller Mediterranean world. This idea of this sort of very old conflict between wanting to be a power abroad, but also wanting Republican freedom and limited government at home? And do these ends, is there blowback? Do these ends come into conflict? So the, these are a lot of the ways that I think people have looked to Rome for examples. I, I think another way that is such a powerful example is looking at what constitutional crisis looks like. You know, of course, it's not the only constitutional crisis in history, but it's sort of the foundational one. When, when the American founders look back, you know, even with people as early as Machiavelli look back and think about what happens when a republic falls in, into, into dictatorship and, and one-man rule, Rome is the go-to example, so it's just, in that way it's a cautionary tale, even if it's not a perfect parallel. You know, when you know when George Lucas is, is trying to think about the, what he's going to put in the Star Wars people, and he's talking about a Galactic Republic turning into an Empire, that 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 whole thing is is patterned on on the model of Rome. So it's really deep in our in our cultural memory in a lot of ways. So that's one thing. I mean, some of the ways in which I think it's it's not entirely parallel, or is just it's a you know different economic system, a you know, system that that's based on slavery. A system, of course, in which you know the the only political power are men. You know, a system in which politics has to be done on the face to face level and not kind of mediated. In any area, that politics is essentially just sort of a face to face affair. You know, things like like rumor and word of mouth matter because there there's no mass media to speak of. So you know these these are details, but they're details that that matter because I think sometimes people, you know, maybe even me, sometimes look a little too uncritically at like, oh, it's a, it's, a, it's a Republican government that's also running an empire and has a constitutional crisis and think, boom, just like us. Well, yeah, maybe in some ways, but but in some ways, I think the details and the differences matter just as much.
1: Well, is there anything you'd like to say about stoicism while I have you? Any quick takes or reflections on uh, how stoicism has developed, how you've changed your your mind about stoicism, if at all, as a result of doing these projects?
0: Yeah, so I think You know, one thing that that really interests me is the ways in which, you know, these two figures I spent a lot of time with, you know, Cato and Cicero are both associated with Stoicism. You know, Cato a little bit more than Cicero. Cato's sort of famous as the Roman Stoic, the person who sets the model for what Stoicism means. Cicero has some nice things to say about Stoicism, but he's also sort of willing to make fun of it and dissociate himself from it, which is not surprising. But I guess part of the reason that I think Stoicism appeals to people like cicero and cato in their time and place and has appealed to lots of people lots of times and places is because i i think sort of at the heart of it as far as i understand it and i'm no sort of specialist on it but i think at the heart of it is this idea of responding to uncertainty this idea of when what we're going to get from the world is is so in, insecure whether it's our happiness or, or the health and safety of people we love or our own health and safety or our own material success you know things that can be taken away from us in an instant when that's the case you know, stoicism, I think, has looked like a real refuge to people. The, this the sense that that there's a part of ourselves that is always under our control. There, there are things that we can draw on to uh, fortify ourselves against these things. And I think there there's sort of critiques of that that approach as well. But as far as I'm concerned, at least I could say that I, I I both see why it's so appealing to people situated like Cato and Cicero are situated, and also appealing to people who are situated now in a time that, you know, maybe is not quite fall the Roman Republic levels of upheaval, but sometimes look as if it might be in which we're living through a, an extremely turbulent time that looks to get more turbulent. And I think Stoicism both gives people sort of an armor against that, but also gives them the means and wherewithal not to withdraw from society, but to be active participants in it, even as they recognize that there are some things that that, that, that can't be touched by what goes wrong. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, that's great. It's been a pleasure talking about this stuff with you.
1: Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. If you found this conversation useful, please give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you use, and share it with a friend. We are just starting this podcast, so every bit of help goes a long way. And I'd like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. Do check out his work at ancientliar.com and please get in touch with us at Stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback or questions. Until next time.